welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Today, I talked to Nick Hashka for a second time. Nick was one of my first interviews a few months ago, and I had him back on today to elaborate on a Twitter thread that he put out last week, which I found uh, pretty intriguing and wanted to have him kind of talk out some of the points he made in that thread. So without further ado, here is Nick Hashka. Nick Hashka, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Thanks for having me back. So yeah, this is your second time on Acquiring Minds, Nick. You, for r- listeners who didn't hear your first episode, I recommend everyone go back and listen to that. You acquired an indoor plant services business in 2016, about five years ago, and proceeded to buy more of them and assembled something of a Bay Area uh, indoor plant services empire in these intervening five years, which is what that whole first interview was about. And you are also uh, very visible on SMB and ETA Twitter. And it was, in fact, a tweet of yours from last week that got my attention and what we're going to talk about today. You uh, tweeted about six or seven observations on what is different in 2021 versus 2016 in this small business acquisition world and market. And uh, some very interesting observations, particularly for somebody like me, who's very new to this space. So I just wanted to have you on and have you talk through the, each of these items um, sure. and we'll just make it a conversation. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to uh, read to you your tweet and just have you expand upon it. Sure. So you say that a huge chunk of the, of the so-called silver tsunami opportunity is now behind us. Um, silver tsunami, of course, is, is this idea that there's this demographic shift from baby boomers who are small business owners and now want to retire. And there are many, many millions of people are looking to sell a business. And so that's perceived as a great opportunity for uh, acquisition entrepreneurs. And you're arguing that this, is, this moment may have passed or we're on the downswing. So please go ahead. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, if you look at demographics, it would suggest we're probably in the back half. Uh, but just in terms of what I'm seeing out there, as far as doing proprietary search, like I'm getting more, more and more responses back uh, from people like, oh, I sold the business a year ago, or I sold the business two years ago, or I'm starting to really see it and get those kinds of responses that when, you know, in, in prior years, or when we set out and started searching, like that was pretty rare. I wasn't getting nearly as much of that. And so um, I think it's possible that I'm seeing more of it, but I kind of think that the last five years have been a major, major uh, turnover. You're, you know, uh, there's been pretty rapid turnover. I've seen it in my market. There's um, guys buying plant companies um, in other markets too. And there's a more of a searcher led entrepreneurial venture in almost every major metro Um just in our industry. And I know the same as we're in landscaping as well. Same, same goes there. A lot of, a lot of turnover has happened in the last five years. And so, you know, my view is that I think um, a lot of the best stuff, the most sellable, the most, you know, the clearest opportunities for owners to have an obvious sale pathway um, probably happened. Um, And then there's probably a big culling of the herd um, that occurred because of COVID and businesses may not, that may previously have been thought sellable, may not be sellable or may be closed. And so there's probably a 
pretty sizable shock going on because of that. Um, and I know it's just harder to arrange financing because of COVID as well. And so businesses, it, it may be more difficult to rope in a, um, a succession um, acquisition um, with financing on terms that would be you know, mutually agreeable because of this like crazy external shock. You're seeing this outside of the Bay Area. So you've looked at other markets in your industry, in the plant services industry, and you've seen it, it, you've seen that there are kind of Nikashka, the Nikashka of Atlanta and the Nikashka of Boston, people who are this generation, the new generation buying up plant yep. indoor plant services companies. Yeah. And and I think every market is different in terms of what the geo or like what the demographics of that specific market look like. Every industry even is different in terms of like how old is too old to run a plant company versus a landscaping company versus an electrician? Um, so there's different factors at play here. But yeah, I, I'm I have a hypothesis that um, that a lot of the you know a lot of the best opportunities may maybe have are, are behind us. And that's not to say that there's not opportunities. I mean, we're still talking about large numbers of businesses and large yeah. amounts of turnover. But that said, like it's not going to get easier from here. It's going to get harder from, from where we are, mm -hmm. in my opinion. What I wonder is, you know, when we talked on, on our first interview, you, you talked about this phenomenon of like, you acquired the right gardener and then the right guard, that owner um, knew, you know, was kind of friendly, competitive with a bunch of, a, a bunch of his competitors. And so they all heard that whatever Bob had sold his business and they knocked on your door saying, Hey, buy my business as well. And so I'm this kind of domino effect in a very hyper local and a very hyper hyper local local market might occur where one of the retiring business owners sells his business and then the other ones all raise their hand and want to get by and so that's a great opportunity for the acquirer but i but i wonder if that's just um what i was going to ask is if that maybe just happened in your market and it's kind of a false positive but in fact it sounds like you've looked all over the country and it's not just it's not just the Bay Area where plant services are being bought up. It's it's other places as well. Other yeah, teams. yeah. I think I think that I think there is something to that kind of domino effect idea, and it only takes the first one yeah. to get the ball rolling, and then it can happen quickly after that. Yeah. Okay. Your second observation related, just in terms of things getting a little more difficult. The lower middle market is even more flooded with capital. I'm quoting you now, and there's more mm -hmm. recognition of the need to go after operator succession plans versus only backing intact management teams to get deal flow. The big scarcity is in well-matched dealer-operator combinations. So that's really about um, kind of private equity's role in the market. Please, please explain. Yeah. So when we started, we weren't, we didn't go into this really knowing what our business model was going to be. We kind of landed on it based on where we thought the best opportunity was. But there was a, a viable path for us to do what most people would call an independent sponsor pathway. Um, and the, I think the thing that the advice that we were getting and just from talking to people who were raising money in the space, people who had a track record in the space is that really most of the money was looking at looking for opportunities where the uh, management team was already intact. Like they're mm -hmm. investing against a growth business plan a new ambition for a company, maybe, but fairly minor changes at the management level, not for, uh, and they were scared of, or not likely to back, especially an industry outsider coming in and, and taking on a CEO, taking the helm of a, of a, a new growth strategy for a business that 
you know, and trying to grow a business at 10% that had only ever grown at, you know, 3% or 5% or whatever. Um, and now that, and, and the lower middle market was, was pretty uh, flush with capital five years ago. Um, but I think that, that dry powder just continues um, to increase and pile up. And I think the opportunities for an intact management team to, to go after and get more aggressive with private equity money, those, those sorts of opportunities are, are fairly rare at this point. And the only way for middle market to deploy capital now is to come up is to get a bit more creative and to be willing to take on a little bit harder stuff. Um, and by harder, I mean potentially management team rebuilds, um, kind of new strat strategic pivots and things like that. That maybe in the past they did never really had to do because they were kind of evaluating deals and evaluating strategies and kind of putting money and saying no to most things. And now, if they want to invest any money at all. It's going to involve uh, more elbow grease, probably more risk in terms of uh, investing against a, a business plan that is not just a continuation of of the the recent three years. And so that sound like that's not good news for them because they're having to work harder than they did before. But it's also not good news for people who are looking to buy a small business because now you're competing with that much more capital. Pri these private equity folks who traditionally have only bought businesses that are you know, whatever, $5 million in enterprise value or $2 million in enterprise value. They're coming, either buying even smaller businesses, a business that I as an individual might want to buy. Right. And they're having, they're, I think, probably being having to be increasingly tolerant of risks that they may have just passed on prior. And that in past years, those passes create opportunities for somebody who's willing to do some of that, some of that work that maybe they would say, we don't need to do that work. And all of this is just because uh, because of the macro trend of there just being huge amounts of capital sloshing around the world. I mean, the yeah. the price appreciation appreciation we're seeing in all asset classes is now starting to come even into this messy, opaque world of small business acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that's <laughs> that's uh, one more way things are getting a little bit more difficult for a buyer like me and kind of small time buyers. Um, your third observation is that there's just lots more buyers and, and non-private equity buyers, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So talk to me about that. Yeah, I think the secret's out. I mean, there's a lot more community out there. So it's possible that more there's more connections, there's more resources. The business schools are onto this. They're teaching newly minted MBAs or they're minting MBAs with a plan to do this. Um, I think there's, there's really this, the search fund world was only the beginning. And now there's, you know, more and more resources and uh, reference cases for different ways to attack this SMB entrepreneurial game. And whatever your strategy is, there's probably something, a resource out there um, and a community out there that is uh, aligned with or informed on that strategy. So um, that has a compounding effect. Um, but at the same time, it also means that there really is more competition for um, for the entrepreneurs um, running up against each other to try to get these deals. I wonder. I wonder where this. If there's a cycle here or a, a peak or something in in this kind of search path, I wonder if um, if we're close to that. Uh, that's not what you're saying. You're simply saying that compared to 2016, things are harder. But um, 
kind of reminds me, I was talking to a Burning Man friend uh, and he was like, you know, the, the joke is the complaint of Burning Man is that always like, oh, five years ago, it was so much better, you know, and that's been the complaint about Burning Man since like 2000. Like it was always, you know, better before. Um, and the search fund world is more crowded than 2016, but it's still a lot of people have never even heard of it. So I just, I, I wonder what we'll be saying in 2026. Yeah, probably more crowded, more people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, shifting away from um, kind of the the piece of, you know, how much interest there is in this space to your next observation, which was about just a labor market. Uh, so t- t- talk about that, please. Yeah, so, I mean, this has been written about broadly um, in the in you know, the mainstream business media, but like, I think there's some reality to the, a lot of people are on the sidelines, right? The, there's a lot of people in, in the market overall, I mean, you kind of have to differentiate between skilled and unskilled, um, you know, there's the shortages persist in say the trades, right? That those those shortages were there before and they're there now, and they might even be more now because a lot of the people in the trades were older. And so there's retirement going on kind of on, on the workforce side. And so there's some um kind of strange nonlinear um things happening, I think, especially in the trades. Um and um, I think the the labor market, yeah, it's just it's very very difficult to find um, labor, really skilled or unskilled, um, who can reliably show up and and do the job. Um, and I'd say small business owners in particular are really are feeling that. Is it so bad that that should spook me if I'm looking to buy a blue collar small business that I should wait a year and see how this crazy labor shortage thing shakes out? Um. I don't know that spook would be the term I would use, but I think you better have a plan for it, right? You better have some some tools and tricks and ideas as to how you can do it different or better um, than your predecessor. Yeah. And in the absence of that, I would be very cautious. The best opportunities in our market have shifted away from B2B and toward B2C. What do you mean? Um, so the B2B market, especially in the Bay Area where we are, is 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 really, really tough because the it seems like the businesses that are succeeding are increasingly remote and virtual, increasingly uh, catering to a global audience. Um, so they're selling into a global audience. Um, kind of the local uh B2B services, um, it's just a tough place to be. And that's, you know, that's where our niche has been is, is in B2B services. And, and yes, you still have to cut the grass, um, but there's uh, on the indoor side, like a lot of like office catering companies and events. And, you know, a lot of this is COVID, but it, there's also some, probably some durability to the increasing challenge and headwinds in the B2B market here. Um, because I think what remains is is actually different than looks different, and the nature of work is different, um, and that will probably persist for a while, especially here, um, because it's so concentrated in tech, um, and um, and so you know my view is that, but the the workers, especially on the skilled side here, have never done better, 
right? And so yeah. they're taking in real income and they want to spend it on things, right? Pools, hot tubs, whatever, um, experiences. And I think a consumer-oriented um, play is better suited to this market and what's going on here. Because I think businesses are still reticent to spend. Um, and um, and so I think the if there's been any like kind of overwhelming change in flow of funds, um, B2B, you know, there's more tepid behavior on the B2B side, business being other businesses for services um, than there is on the consumer side where everybody, got, everybody in the Bay Area who's done well through the pandemic, what they're looking for is somebody who will show up and who will. Um, and, and so I think that's a great opportunity for an entrepreneur who wants to is, wants to come and do that work. Um, and, and to make to make this observation a little more concrete, um, let me let me reinterpret it, and you you tell me if I have it right. Anything when B, when you say B two B, sort of anything that touches commercial real estate um, and offices and people, you know, going to those offices and and the, the footprint of these companies. So anything you know, commercial real estate directly or any of anything in that ecosystem like yours, which is plant services for offices or yep. commercial landscaping or what have you, like, obviously 2020 was a huge shock to that, but there's probably a permanent uh, reduction in the size of that market or the demand for those services. So that would kind of be, that's kind of the B2B piece. On the B2C piece, you might mean like home, home service plays, uh, like you said, pools, hot tubs. Um, so people are spending more time in their homes. And at least in the Bay Area, these people have, the, these workers are doing better than ever, as you put it. So they're willing to spend money on their homes and their comfort. Uh, and so you see this kind of rising demand for home services and this services around the home, the residential kind of home yeah. services uh, and a less a slackening demand of stuff that relates to the office, basically. Yeah. And I'd say you can play B2B as long as you're in the B2B to C supply chain, right? You mm -hmm. can still do a B2B services business, but it better be selling pool parts to pool contractors or... Right something like that um that's not to say that the that there that hasn't created new tailwind opportunities for b2b entrepreneurs but um the i think the more the obvious first order um conclusion there is the is kind of the shift from b2b to b2c and is the right gardener doing in any sort of strategic pivot uh or or recalibration in light of this observation it hasn't we've I'd say over the years pivoted away from residential um, and designed the business away from it. So um, it hasn't gotten dire enough to start mm -hmm. moving, moving back yet. Okay. Your last, last observation was around no code uh, and that the, the tools have gotten better than I could have ever imagined quoting you. So tell us yeah. about that. Yeah. So we, especially on the plant side and in landscaping as well, um, we've basically coded our own service operations apps, coded a lot of our own automations, automated notifications, a lot of automated emails, automated checking of data. Um, and it's all pretty simple. We Our platform of choice is AppSheet for the businesses we run, but um, there's great stuff in JotForm, in Airtable, in Bubble, in... A whole, I mean, there's so many of these um, where you can automate uh, even even um, what people consider to be more off the shelf SaaS like Pipe Drive or Asana, 
they're building more and more automation customizability um, into their platforms. And it just allows you to do things at a scale uh, and with a level of kind of consistency um, that never really was possible before. And um, we've had to do a lot of that and just retooling our own operations to, to serve in a, to serve, you know, indoor offices um, almost by appointment when before everything, it was like totally open schedule, no notifications required. Our person would show up and the office would be open. And um, it's administ- what we do now is administratively a hundred times more complicated than what we used to do. And we've only been able to get there without a hundred times the administrative expense through customizing these tools um, to do things that we that weren't demanded of us before. Um, and, and, and wouldn't have really, it maybe would have been possible five years ago, but it would have been hard and it would have been expensive and it wouldn't have been nearly as reliable or as well e- easy to execute. Right. Um, so, I, so I think the difference is, I mean, in 2016, you could have hired a developer to build all this stuff, which would have been prohibitive. But when, but now you have all of this technology that's custom just to the right gardener and what you all need. And I think the difference is, is that actually you, Nick, <laughs> did yep. a lot of this, right? Yeah, I'm the developer. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's pretty profound that the CEO of the business doesn't have to be hire can, can do this stuff, and you don't have to hire a, a developer or a team of developers. And so you, Nick, are building stuff in AppSheet. Remind me. I think in our first interview, you actually told me um, one of the cost savings that you got from building one of your AppSheet apps. Mm. Do, do you remember what that uh, is? Um, I mean, I think the most obvious one was just how much time we were spending on scheduling. I mean, we had like three quarters of an employee doing scheduling for you know, 10, 10 field technicians. Um, and scheduling now takes you know 15 minutes a week. Um, now there's a bunch of rescheduling and administration work that we have to do now that we didn't have to do back then. Um, but a lot of the workflow itself is automated and we can, uh, really make the, the schedules efficient, um, um, because of the automations we've put in place. Nick, what's your opinion on how easy no code tools are, how accessible they are to people who are not maybe maybe as technically inclined as you. Certainly it's easier than raw code, but there's a bit of a debate in the tech world that, you know, no code can be oversold. It still takes a bit of a programming mind. Yeah. It's easier than writing straight code, but can be, um, can be tricky. So um, any thoughts on that? Cause I think you're a pretty technically minded guy. Yeah. I mean, I think if, especially if you've got experience in spreadsheets or doing any kind of work with data at all, um, it will come very quickly. So I have no f- real formal like computer science training, um, but I know how to get, I know how to, you know, move around a spreadsheet. Um, I can write formulas and do stuff like that. So any, I'd say anybody who has like any substantial amount of like financial modeling experience, any sort of analyst type work, I think could very readily pick up and run with uh, a no-code platform um, without, you know, a, going to a three-month boot camp or something yeah. like that. Um, if you have no technical acumen whatsoever, I have no reason to expect that um, you would really enjoy or um, succeed jumping into even a no-code, even you know, the most simple no-code environments. But I think. 
the amount of technical know you need is, 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 is really not that much. And some of them are easier than others. There's one that's like glide. Um, I think it's called, you can, it, you can do a real, you can do really fast. Um, just get up, get something working that is functional very, very quickly with pretty minimal amount of knowledge of, of glide. I'd also add that even if you are somebody who's just not going to be comfortable learning a tech tool, uh, the fact that these no-code tools exist mean in the hands of somebody who is comfortable with technology, they can build something for you really quickly. So let's say you still have to hire a developer. They can build something for you in a tenth of the time that's custom to your business than they could have in 2016. So there's st- even if you're not the one getting your hands dirty in the no-code tool, the the benefit that you, you talk about, Nick, still uh, is there to be taken advantage of. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I think the the age there's almost this like agency model developing for developers where the the barriers to entry of or the right to earn the developer title has never get has never been easier. Um, and you're you're seeing you know firms that specialize just in basically executing these no code um, tools pop up, and the level of code knowledge required like you don't really need um, a, uh, a computer science resume to work at one of those places. And so, and, and, you know, they can hire, you know, newly minted college grads who have a degree in math or any sort of technical or, and even non-technical, um, so long as they have the computer skills, um, those folks can, uh, that's a new career avenue that maybe wasn't available a few years, a few years back. Right. Right. And you, as the small business owner, you can pay $5,000 for something by, from this agency versus the $50,000 it would have cost. Right. And then potentially even once you once it's developed, then potentially maintain it yourself. So it's not yeah. scary. And you can go in and increase the code. They can introduce you to it, show you how it works. And if you need to tweak it, you can go in there and do it yourself. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for walking me through those, Nick. Great to have you back on. And um, I'm, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll be reaching out to you again in your DMs to, to have you back. <laughs> Just keep putting out interesting tweets. Sounds good. Thanks for having me back. Cool. Thanks, Nick. All Bye. right. Take care, Will.